you're new, welcome to Element. Uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on our communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. And on one side, you'll get a big idea of what we're talking about today, some questions if you want to ask one another to reflect on what we talk about today. On this side, you'll get the verses that we cover and also the announcements that we do. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on More and then Events in Uversion. Uh, Uversion, when you, when you download it, it just says Bible. And you open it up, uh, More, Events, and then we'll come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Uh, this is the verse we talked about a lot last week. 2 Corinthians 5.21 for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who rest and trust in your righteousness that you have given to us. That we would understand that the relationship we have with you, the salvation that we speak of, is simply because of your grace and your goodness. And we would live in that, trusting for what you have done, so that our lives live out in great freedom, focused upon who you are. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are doing this series of element called Acts Part 2. It's do, doing chapters 13 through the end of the book of Acts. About four and a half years ago, we did Acts Part 1, which did chapters 1 through 12. We thought we'd speedily get to the second part. It's my sarcasm for you, okay? Uh, you can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 15 if you'd like. Acts 15, as I told you last week, is one of my favorite chapters in the book of Acts because it's really about these ideas of law versus grace. What happens is there's a guy named Paul and a guy named Barnabas. They go on a journey to spread the good news of God's rescue of us to the world. They speak of how we have run from God, rebelled against Him, but God has come to us in the person of Jesus who died on the cross and rose from the grave in order to forgive our sins and draw us to Himself. It's not based on us trying to figure our lives out and get them all put together so God will love us or like us again. It's that God has extended grace to us as a people. So they go out and speak of God's redeeming work in the world. They come back on this trip with lots of joy and converts that there's a problem. And the problem comes where a lot of problems come from today, and that is the most religious people around. And when I say that, I don't mean faith in Jesus is a problem. That's not what I'm saying. What I mean is many times the people who see themselves as the most devout followers of God, and this goes for any religion, usually are the ones who end up giving a religion a bad name. It's, it's like uh, the Jewish Pharisees. They had this thing called the law, and they loved the law. And the law spoke about all these different things about purity before God. And what they did when they read through this law is they took it, not in the letter of, or how it was meant, but what they did is they started to separate themselves from anybody they saw as impure so they wouldn't become impure by being around those people. And what it did is it pulled them away from loving and serving those who really needed them the most. Sometimes today you have people called monks, and they will go live up in uh, their lives in quiet monasteries on, on hills because they want to grow closer to God. But what they do in the end is they separate themselves from those God is calling them to minister to the most, namely really everyone in the world. And you, and you probably see this when you watch the news or anything today. A lot of churches today will preach about all the things they're against. against. You hear this all the time. You know, they're against abortion and murder and homosexuality and drunkenness and racism and bigotry as a way to try and bring morality to the world that's around them. And yet many times they're afraid to actually engage the world around them in relationship. And so they do this thing called like church by bomb shelter and they, and they shrink back and they hide away and don't want any of those other people. They just want to lob bombs about what they don't like. 
Now, I think that today we can have conversations about morality, but we are meant to be a people who speak about Jesus first and foremost and what he is doing in the world. And what is he doing in the world? 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, uh, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's that God just doesn't come up to us and call out our failures and say, you better figure it out, loser. God actually comes to us in Jesus to rescue us, to bring us back into relationship with him, and to grow us because he loves us. And it's not that God can't handle being around sin. It's that sin can't be in the presence of God. So God has to do something about it because we cannot do anything about it ourselves. And this is why we talk about the good news of what we call the gospel, God's rescue of us. Now, it's this whole debate about morality and ritual and law and grace that sits as the background for what happens in Acts chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas are going around speaking of how God is for us. Not all of our crazy ideas, but actually for us as a people. God is rescuing us from all of our crazy ideas which lead to sin, and God is doing a restorative work himself to bring us back into relationship with him. And there are a lot of people who love this good news, and they, and they latch onto it, and they trust it, what God is doing in the world. They want to be in relationship with him. And then as soon as Paul and Barnabas talk about this, they move on to a different city. And as soon as they go to a different city, people start coming in behind Paul and Barnabas and saying, yes, yeah, that's a great message, but they didn't give you all of it. You also need to follow all the ritual laws of the Jews. You need to be circumcised. And people are like, I need to be what? I need to be circumcised. And, and so you have these, and these people, you can't hate them for doing this because they do it because they really love God. And they want other people to love God, but they just don't understand really the grace of what God is doing in the world. There's a lot of people today who are just like this. They have a way that they show how they love God, and they think everybody else needs to show that love of God the exact same way that they do rather than understanding that we are called into relationship by grace. Acts 15 verse 1 tells us, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now if you weren't here last week, you're welcome. We talked about circumcision. We're not going to talk about it today. Yay, go you. Uh, Paul and Barnabas hear what these people are saying, that they need to be circumcised, and they start to argue vehemently, vehemently against it. They say, no, no, we are saved by grace alone. And they argue about this, but the guys saying these things, that they need to be circumcised, they came from this church in Jerusalem. I call it the mothership. And so what happens is Paul and Barnabas are like, well, we need to go to the mothership and hash this thing out. So they go to the church in Jerusalem to talk about grace. In Jerusalem, all the heavy hitters in that early church are there. You have, you have Peter and James and all these people, and they all agree in the end that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, do not need to be circumcised, and they are saved by grace alone. Peter will talk about how God sent him to this guy named Cornelius, who was a Gentile. And God proceeded to save everybody in that guy's house. There was no circumcision, no ritual cleansing, no goat with its blood being spilled on the carpet because Jesus had fulfilled the law. James, one of the first leaders of the early church, stands up and says that God is bringing everybody into relationship with him, and we need to be about God's work in the world. Uh, Acts 15, verse 19, James says, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Because it's about grace. Let's be on God's team. And then he says, But... And here's the but. We should write them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Now, last week I told you that sounds a little weird. It's like they go here, have this whole debate. Great. Let's not lay on the Gentiles any of the rituals of the Jews. 
except for these rituals of the Jews. It sounds really weird, but there's a whole thing that's actually taking place in this because this isn't about ritual law. What this is about is how do we teach all these people from all these diverse ways of life to come together and worship God together? How do we teach them to serve one another under one banner? Because the Jews viewed blood as defilement, and the Gentiles didn't necessarily do it. It's like the Gentiles would love their steaks medium rare, and the Jews were like, oh, you got to cook all the blood out of it, so it's like a piece of charcoal when you eat it. And how do you get these two people, if they're having dinner together, to actually, one, not to feel like, oh, that's a sin, and they'll be like, why are you judging me? How do you get them to come together and worship God together, to love one another? How do we really bring all these cultures together under Christ. And it comes down to the idea of how do we learn to serve one another. So James isn't laying ritualistic law down. What is he saying is consider your brothers when you walk with one another. Don't do anything that would rob them of the joy of being able to hang out with you in the company of God together as a people. So I'm going to read to you what happened after the whole debate and then how they're sending them back to Antioch to talk about this. So Acts 15 verse 22, it's where we left off last week. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. So this is what they say. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So they they send them back with this letter written to these people. They send them back with this news and two people back with them. Judas called Barsabbas and Silas. Now, Judas called Barsabbas. They don't call him Barsabbas because after Judas betrayed Jesus, Judas' name fell out of vogue, you know, like Lucifer or Adolf or something like that. Really, in the first century, there's a ton of people named Judas. It's kind of like Mike today. We were in Colorado Springs a couple weeks ago. I had Mike Harmon and Michael Reed. We had dinner at Mike and Carrie Foster's house. We had six people in the room. 50% of them were named Mike. So this is what, let's give this guy a nickname so we can differentiate him from the other one. Now, Barsabbas it really just means born on the Sabbath. There's a law against you know, work on the Sabbath, but you can't stop a baby coming on the Sabbath. So anyway, and they also sent a guy named Silas. They called them leading men of the brothers. Now, in Jewish culture, you had to have two or more witnesses for a thing to be true and believed. So in Antioch, where this whole thing started, Paul and Barnabas have to go back with authority and say, this is what the council said. If it was just them, they could show up and say whatever they wanted, like fake news. And you have a problem with fake news today? Imagine back then in the first century. It took forever for letters and mail to get anywhere. You could show up anywhere with anything saying you were... You ever met somebody who like lied on a resume and said, Oh, I got a degree from here, and they didn't? Google it. It's funny. 
You can read all about these things. But that's it's, it's whole fake news kind of thing. To act, today, there's actually this whole section of books called the Pseudopographa. And there are all these books that were written after the apostles died, but they slap apostles' names on them. One of them is called the Gospel of Thomas. This is what this entire book called the Da Vinci Code was based upon. Like, oh, Tom, Thomas didn't write the Gospel of Thomas. There are all these different books that have all these names attached to them, but they weren't written until centuries after the apostles died. You have the Apocalypse of Peter, the Apocalypse of Abraham, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Thomas, none of which were written by them. They just put apostles' names on them to get people to read them, and they are nothing like the Gospels. And if you're lying about you know, who wrote it, you're not Scripture. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul actually has to calm people down because people are writing false letters in his name. This is what he says. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and are being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be easily disconcerted or alarmed by any spirit or message or letter presuming to be from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has already come. It's like someone showed up and wrote a left-behind book and slapped Paul's name on it, and everybody didn't think it was fiction. They thought it was true. They're like, oh my goodness, and they all freaked out. So how do you prove a letter was true? What you do is you have witnesses, someone trusted from the source to go and show up. And here, because the cause of the gospel is so great, because grace is so important, they send two of their own from the Jerusalem church. There wanted to be no doubt about this message of grace and salvation alone. And it's sad that it comes to this, but the problem with people is, People are people, and we're not always trustworthy. And this is one of the reasons you actually can trust the Bible you have in your hands, because there is overwhelming evidence for it and support of it. Now, keep your place in Acts 15, but I want you to open to Romans chapter 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, if you have a Bible. If you have a phone, you just kind of, and you're there already. But if you have a Bible and you like the hard copy, go there. So they, they get there, they speak of grace with that caveat that says that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Now, these again are words about how do we get them to hang out together, to be able to do fellowship with one another, all people worshiping Jesus together. And it leads to all these things that Paul talks about in some other places with different diverse groups. I talked about this a couple weeks ago, but this is what Paul says, Romans 14 verses 2 and 3. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So that is really about blood and things that are strangled. So go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 9 to 13. Paul says this there, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And that is about food sacrifice to idols, covering a lot of those things. Now, Romans 14 and 15 are about a dispute in this place called a church in Rome. And Paul is not saying, as much as I like to make fun of it a bunch of times, that vegetarians have bad theology. That's not what he's saying. What he says is, the weak person eats only vegetables. He says that because in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, there's this long list of foods that were considered unclean for the Israelites for years. Unclean foods. Now, the purpose of those unclean foods was to help Israel keep its national identity. To remind them, you don't just to go, go in front of a holy God without some sort of cleansing. But then 
Paul will tell them that Jesus is the one who does cleanse us. Paul reminds in Romans 14 that in Jesus, no food is unclean. It is Jesus who makes us clean and presentable before the Father by his grace. No performance, no regulation, no circumcision, no prescriptions could do that. All these clean and unclean laws have all been fulfilled in Christ, and that's grace. But there's a group of people in the church in Rome who, though they believed the gospel, the good news of grace, they couldn't shake these centuries of traditions that they had grown up with in their culture, and they believed it was still wrong for Christians to eat these foods. And what Paul calls them is weak in faith. Because though they believed the gospel, Jesus' rescue, they believed they were accepted by what he has done, but they hadn't been able to work out all the implications of that, and they had some unnecessary rules to help them feel spiritually okay. Meaning, they had heard the gospel, but they hadn't fully applied the gospel to their life. And when they talks about that, those are these ideas of those strangled and that blood being in the food. He also says there are people in the church in Rome who are strong. They understand there's really nothing wrong with eating that food. In Antioch, that would be like that medium rare steak. And so in Rome, the weak people were the Jews, and the strong people were those Gentiles. But if you go to the other place, the Jews aren't the only ones who did this. The church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 8, do the same thing. It's just a bit differently, and they are Gentiles. Now, in Corinth, if you wanted to go buy some meat, you would do it in, in the markets downtown. Almost all the meat in the downtown markets had been blessed by some sort of pagan priest who worshipped some type of idol. And so these Christians would go down there, and they'd be like, oh, I need to buy some meat, but it's a sacrifice to an idol. What, what do I do? They had these lingering superstition that somehow these idols had some kind of power, and they were afraid of it. And Paul there calls the Gentiles weak, because they don't see all the implications of Christ's triumph. They haven't worked out all the implications of the gospel in that area. And the people who are strong in Corinth are the Jews, who know it's all right to eat that meat, that the idols aren't anything. And that all relates to Acts chapter 15, because you have two cultural groups. You have Jewish Christians who have been converted out of Judaism and these Greco-Roman Gentiles who have been converted out of paganism. And in Corinth, the ones who still felt that maybe the idols had some power are the Gentiles. And the Jews in that case are like, you know, come on, understand the gospel. And in Rome, the group most likely to be stuck in moralism in regard to the Mosaic Law are the Jews. And it is the Greek Gentile ex-pagans who come along and say, oh, come on, understand the gospel. See, our, our cultural differences, what they do is they have an impact on our view of everything around us. And think about daylight savings in America. You lost an hour. What does that do to you? Big cultural expectation right there, right? <laughs> Maybe not. Um, we will read life including the scriptures through many times a cultural position. And every group has different experiences in the world, and we shouldn't try to deny it. And the early church saw that, and they wanted Christians to be aware of it for the sake of one another. These two passages show us the background of one group in one setting makes them far wiser about the gospel, but in another setting it makes them far dumber. And the other group in one setting makes them far dumber. Another group makes them you know, far wiser, depending on where they are. And what that means is we need one another. We need one another. Only by doing life together will we see all the results of what the gospel brings. And that is what the early church is trying to do by all these recommendations. Acts 15, verse 28, no greater burden than these requirements. The requirements were not about salvation. They're about fellowship with one another coming together. They're not even trying to say, oh, you're right and they're wrong in this. They're saying we should love one another and make following Christ a priority for us together. 
And a lot of times when this happens, people who think they're very culturally conscious say, we all just need to be a little bit more open-minded, right? That's what people say a lot, that, you know, in these verses, you know, the, the strong people, we're open-minded. We see both sides of this thing. But it's interesting here that in these places, what Paul does is he tells the people who consider themselves strong to learn how to suck it up a bit. That's what he says. In Romans 14, verse 3, he says, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Why would Paul say that? Because they're both doing that. They're both passing judgment on each other. The open-minded and closed-minded are both looking down on each other. You know, so, so the open-minded were judging others for not being as open-minded as them. It still happens today. People, people who claim to be the most tolerant in our world today are many times the most intolerant. You ever seen that? I told you this before. If, if, you think, if you're intolerant of intolerant people, you're intolerant. If you're judgmental of judgmental people, you're judgmental. If we run around just trying to say everybody is right, that makes you so exclusive. Because if someone doesn't think everybody's right, well, then you're thinking they're wrong. So apparently not everybody's right. And it creates so much infighting in the world. And so what Paul does is he doesn't say, oh, just be open-minded. What he does is he calls every person who calls himself a Christian, who understands the gospel, he says, accept the weak. That's what he tells them to do. Now, the word accept is this word called proslambano, and it means to draw in, to open up your circle, to welcome somebody in, to adjust your life and make changes so you can have a relationship with someone who is culturally different than you. Paul does not say, accept the sin, tell them whatever they want to do is okay. That's not what he says. He's talking about different cultural appropriations that are not sinful, just weak. Adjust your life in ways to have a deep relationship with people who are different than you. Now, some people mistake this completely. They get down to uh, Romans chapter 14, verse 20, and Paul will say, don't do anything that makes your brother stumble. And some people say, well, that, you know, you can't do anything that offends or upsets anybody. That can't be what Paul is saying, because Paul just called people weak. You don't call people weak and have them not get offended. So that can't be what he means in that. Take this today with the whole debate in the church about this thing called alcohol. You ever heard about it? Okay. In the church, you have some people who are are like, alcohol is a sin, you can never drink it. you got people on the other side who are like, Jesus made 180 gallons of wine at Cana for his first miracle, we're going to drink it all, right? And then then you got people in the middle who are like, well, you know, it's not a sin, but it has been used so much to hurt people and stuff, we should just really stay away from it. That's not what Paul is saying. Because Martin Luther comes along after this and he talks about this debate. And he says, there is nothing in the history of the world that people have not used to offend or hurt somebody else with. It's, it's like, how about music? People sin with music all the time. You ever listen, listen to a boy band? Sin. <laughs> Do we get rid of music? No, you don't get rid of music. Sexuality. Men and women have sinned sexually since the beginning of the fall. Do we get rid of men and women and sexuality? No, not at all. Martin Luther said, people worship the stars. Do we get rid of the stars? As if you could. No. People have even used the Bible and pulled things out of context. Do you know that in in early America, the whole slavery debate, people on both sides used the Bible to try and prove their point? Seriously. Do we get rid of the Bible? No, no. What Paul is saying is you've got to be careful about what you say and what you do. And there are times in your life when you feel freedom, but you make some adjustments. There are times that you will refrain from doing things you ordinarily would like to do in order to not mislead or confuse someone who you're trying to develop a relationship with, someone you're trying to talk through that sees things different than you do. Paul is not saying adopt their weak beliefs. What he's saying is, I want you to get in close to others. 
I want you to make every effort possible to see their side of things, to understand why they see things the way that they do, see their position. It's a way of doing everything we can as the body of Christ to come together to live in a relationship while not agreeing where somebody is wrong, but living in a relationship worshiping Jesus first. And I think the Gentile believers in Antioch got it. I think they understood it because this is what you read, Acts 15, 30 to 35. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And what's the response? And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They rejoice. They don't see him as like these burdensome restrictions. It's, it's a joy. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. If you notice, verse 34 is missing. We'll talk about that next week, actually. But they rejoice because these words in the end were about grace. They're about hope and life. And the recommendations were not seen as restrictive. They weren't about salvation. They're about grace and fellowship. And this is how, as a people who love Jesus, the gospel gets to go forward in how we begin to love one another. See, we tend to hang out with people who are just like us, right? Culturally, background, views. Why? It's easier. Sometimes people say, oh, it's a click. Well, sometimes you just click with people and you click. It's, you know, sometimes it's just easier. Like people understand, they get it. You don't have to sit around and watch your jokes or your words every other, so you're not offending somebody. You know, people just get it. And this goes for every culture. Um, I, I have this project in my backyard right now where, where I, have to, I had to fix my pool for the next baptism. So it's like all this dirt and digging. So I've got these guys working back there, and, and they're all Hispanic. And I, and I finally, when I had some time off, I went over, and I'm like, I'm going to dig with you. And, the, and they all kind of stopped and just stared at me like, there's no way that white boy's getting in the pool with us. Right? And I did. And so like for a couple hours, I'm like digging with them. And, and it's interesting what happened because they, they started to speak more English. They stopped making fun of me as much, which I don't mind making fun of me. Uh, they didn't change the music because I enjoy the music sometimes. But, um, but, but all of a sudden, there, there's a whole little cultural shift. And, I'm, and I'm, they're like, hey, you want to eat lunch with us? And I had to go, so I didn't eat lunch with them. But, but they invited me kind of in because I was willing to step out and go to where they were. And this is the thing. We have to be with people who are different than us. It helps us to understand the gospel better, I think. Doug Moo writes this. Paul is not urging the strong simply to bear with or to tolerate or put up with the weak and all their scruples. Paul is calling us to sympathetically enter deeply into the attitudes of the weak, refraining from criticizing and judging them and do what love would require towards them. Why do we do that? Because that's what the gospel did with us. It's exactly what the gospel does with us. God brought us in, even with all of our crazy ideas and all of our weirdness. He speaks to us in the grace of who Jesus is, and he's the one who begins to change us to be more and more like him. Not so he would like us more, but so we'd actually live the life he intends for us to live. God calls us in. And I would say this thing of coming together as a people should be seen in churches more than anywhere else in the world. Because we understand what the gospel means of our rescue and grace. I, I told you guys a couple years ago that I have this charismatic friend who always speaks in tongues, gets words from God, and, and we love each other. And, and I make fun of him, and, and he makes fun of me because I'm a very conservative, theologically reformed guy. He thinks I'm a bit crazy. I think he's a bit crazy. I actually reached out to him uh, this week when I was going through this message. I haven't talked to him for like a year, but we, we used to get together a lot. And we'd and we make fun of each other. You know, I'd be like, hey, you want to go out for a beer? And he'd, go, he'd be like, alcohol is a sin. You know, he'd be like, you want to come to my revival? And i go, my dog barks enough. And he'd be like, ah, that's funny. <laughs> but we can say those things because we love one another. 
And, we, and because of this, we see each other's cultural differences and stuff, and we don't get together and have to be like, oh, we're both right. Because that's dumb. We can love one another and adjust our lives and make space for each other. John 13, 25, Jesus says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It's true fellowship with others is something the gospel produces. It's a result of the good news in our lives, that the world will know that God has transformed us. And God is going to sort out all of our crazy ideas in the end, and you will know that I was right. (laughs) That just went right over your head, huh? Okay. But you have to understand It is only by understanding what the gospel is first that brings this about. The good news of God's rescue. When we are a people who see how we have been rescued and we have been saved by the grace of God, it changes who we are. It changes how we interact with one another. It changes our relationships. When we realize that our sins have been forgiven by Jesus just like everybody else's, we don't feel the need to want to have to crucify somebody else when they hurt us or do something we don't like. It's that we can come together under the banner of Christ because it is the gospel that has rescued us. And we all, as a people, can have all of our little crazy ideas in some ways, but if we center ourselves on Jesus, we walk this road together in goodness and grace. And this is one of the reasons we try to bring you guys to communion every single week. It's a reminder of God's great rescue of us. You break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine or the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me. As, why? Because God comes to draw us to himself in grace and in goodness, to give life to us as a people. And then we as a people live out in that grace and that life with one another. And remember what God has done to rescue you because it humbles us enough to be in a relationship with those around us who also sometimes maybe might drive us nuts. So I'm going to bring the band up, and there's going to be some deacons in the back, and if you guys need prayer, if you're in a place today where maybe you have a friendship that's gone bad because of maybe some different views of some certain things, and you don't feel like you can come together, and maybe they're a Christian and you're a believer, but you guys aren't focusing on Jesus first, you're focusing on all these things, I would encourage you to pray with them. Let them pray with you. And kind of move back to the place where you talk about Jesus being first and paramount in all things first. Maybe you have a friendship in your life that has deteriorated. and Maybe someone else isn't a believer. And maybe you want someone to pray with you to kind of reset your focus again to bring you back to understand the good news of what the gospel is. That your rescue. And so you in humbleness can go and speak to somebody else and enter in in grace into that relationship. And God calls us to be a people who learn how to love one another because he has first loved us. We don't love one another so God loves us more. We love as a reflection of how God has first loved us. And that's how everything begins to make sense when we start living out what God has first done in us. And if you need prayer about that, they would love to pray with you. Uh, There's offering boxes next to every door we give because God gave so much to us, giving us part of our worship. We don't pass the plate. It's a response to what God has done. Uh, There's some sermon notes on the communion tables. Grab some snacks and maybe meet some people this week. And talk through some of those questions. You know, what things tend to divide you and, and your friendships? What, what are the people who you feel like you'd never want to hang out with or you don't want to be around because you're scared of whatever that is? And what places are maybe God calling you into, but you're afraid to step into it? And talk to one another about that. And encourage one another to focus on what God has first done for us and then step out in the hope and life that God has first given to us so that we would be a people who the world will look at and say, my goodness, there's something about those people who love and follow Jesus, and there is something different. 
It is what Jesus has done to rescue us and draw us into relationship with one another again. Let's be a people who are about that grace and that restoration of relationships around us because he has first restored relationship to us. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would remind us of what it means to truly be a people who say they have faith in who you are. That it wouldn't be a faith of things that we are doing, but a recognition of trust in what you have done to rescue us. That you would reset our minds and hearts to understand the hope and the truth of what the gospel truly is. Your rescue of us. And that the results of understanding the gospel would send us as a people on mission out into this world to restore relationship and hope and grace again. That we, as your hands and feet, as your ambassadors to this world, would be able to show what it looks like to have a people come together in worship of who you are, even when we have different views about different things, that you would be central above all that we say and do. That you would mold us and shape us to be more and more like you. And the gospel would change how we see all things. Teach us to be those who live out in this great joy of restoration you have given as we step into relationships with others around us because you are good. And we ask this in your son's good name. Amen.